Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have a conversation with the state fire marshal. Then the latest information on the pandemic in Ohio from Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health. In the second half hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend takes a look back at the riot at the U.S. Capitol one year ago. We'll hear from the two Democrats running for governor of Ohio and also from their running mates, announced just this month. And an in-depth look at Ohio's minimum wage, which went up slightly at the beginning of the year. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic about colorectal cancer and the increase in instances in women that is occurring. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Kevin Reardon, who is the state fire marshal for Ohio. How are you? Hi, how are you, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the job in the office of the state fire marshal is. Well, we, we have a very interesting uh, mission within the Ohio Department of Commerce, where we've been for a little over 100 years. Uh, we are the chief enforcement agency um, for the Ohio Fire Code. Uh, that's our primary duty. And we also serve fire departments to support them in a variety of activities uh, as they conduct their business. And when there's a fire somewhere that is a suspected arson case, you have investigators that go in. Is that correct? Yes, we do. We have our own investigation unit uh, as well as our own forensic lab. Uh, We can go in and investigate the cause and origin of a fire as well as uh, handle any evidence that's collected from that in our laboratory. Is it fair to say if somebody hears in a news story that the state fire marshal is investigating a fire, that it might mean that there's something suspicious in nature about it? Well, there's really no linking. Uh, We have fires that, you know, we can find an origin on uh, very easily. And then we have some fires that are undetermined, regardless of, of what evidence we may or may not be able to find. And then we obviously have those fires that we can tell were purposely or intentionally set. Um, which would be considered an arson fire. And I know this is not what we're going to talk about today, but the investigation of such things, from what I understand, if you pour gasoline into a garage and set it on fire, you're actually going to be able to figure out that that's how it was done. Absolutely. The technology uh, for forensics right now is just leaps and bounds from what it was even just 10 years ago. Uh, it's, it's come ahead a lot in we have a lot of tools at our disposal now that we never had before, and our forensics lab uh, is nationally accredited, so they maintain a standard that's a very high level for all of our all of our uh, forensics lab team members. This is the time of year, from what I understand, that home fires, house fires, are more common. It is, and it's not just in Ohio; that's nationwide. Uh, Winter time, there's always a surge in, in home fires, uh, residential fires. Uh, and it's typically because people are you know, trying to stay warm. They might be using alternative sources of heat. Um, and sometimes that's where we run into a problem, such as what we saw this past weekend up in New York City. Nineteen people killed in a high-rise and uh, a space heater believed to be the cause. There was also a fire last weekend on the 14th floor of a high-rise in Cleveland. From a residential point of view and from a firefighter point of view, must really be frightening incidents. Well, they they absolutely are because these fires generally can be prevented. Um, if you're using space heaters uh, or, or an alternative device such as in New York City, uh, one of the things is that space heater needs to have space around it. We encourage people to have at least 
three feet of clear space around any kind of a space heater that you might use. Uh, we're asking people make sure that their space heater has a tip device on it, tip protection, that if it is knocked over, it automatically shuts off. Uh, one way you can do that is to make sure that if you're buying a space heater, that it is uh, certified by a testing lab such as Underwriters Laboratory or Factory Mutual, any of the national level standard testing labs. Um, that just lets you know that it's a, it's a good product and has met some quality standards for construction and safety. One of the other things we're trying to ask people to do is make sure that they're plugged in directly to an outlet, not into an extension cord or any other type of device. Devices like that pull a lot of current and they need to be plugged in directly to an electrical outlet and nothing else. Talking with Kevin Reardon, the state fire marshal, you were uh, with Columbus Fire for more than 30 years. You were a battalion chief. Tell us something about fires that has stayed in your mind over the decades that maybe people don't appreciate or respect about fires or understand. Oh, my gosh, Dave, there's several things. Um, one, uh, we, we can never underestimate uh, what a fire is going to do. Um, people, people underestimate how smoke can travel. A good example of that is what we saw in New York City this weekend. Just the simple act of closing a door in a room that has a fire in it buys time for you to get out of the building or the structure keeps the smoke from spreading within that structure. Um, a lot of the injuries and fatalities in New York happen because the smoke spread through the whole building. The fire was contained itself to only two floors, but the smoke spread completely throughout the building, and that's because the, the origin of where the fire was, that room, that door was left open when the occupants left. So that helps spread that fire. Some other things are, um, and the stick with me is just how fast um, fire can spread, um, how fast it can consume common, ordinary goods in your house. Uh, it's amazing. And what is also sad and frustrating at the same time is a lot of the fires that we see are completely preventable, absolutely completely preventable. There's a small number of fires that are accidental but very clearly, uh, we see a lot of fires uh, everywhere nationwide, not just here in Ohio, that are completely preventable. And that's very frustrating for firefighters to see because th they know it could have been prevented. And going back to the closing a door, you actually recommend that people close the bedroom door when they go to bed, right? Absolutely. Just in case there, there's a fire outside your hallway door, uh, if that door's closed, it's going to buy you a little bit of time to get out of that bedroom or whatever room you're in. So we do recommend people sleep with the doors closed. Uh, we also recommend smoke detectors inside your sleeping room as well as outside in the hallway where you sleep. Uh, I, I've always, for decades, thought of smoke detectors as money. You can never have enough of them. Uh, and and I, I have that in my own house. I have smoke detectors on every level, in every bedroom, in the hallways. I also have carbon monoxide detectors uh, everywhere we have gas plants, such as in our basement where our furnace is, as well as near our kitchen area where we have a stove. So those are simple things that people could do to help give them some protection and give them warning. And that is the biggest thing. You want to know if something is wrong. And smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors do that. They will alert you that something is wrong. And that gives you time to, to get out. They wake you up before the fumes from that fire renders you unconscious. And, and that's the big advantage of detectors is just the earlier warning you get with a detector 
um, to take and understand and realize that something's wrong so that you can escape. Smoke spreads very fast, very, very fast. And along with that, smoke spreads some heat and the fire right behind it. So it's critical um, that when you hear a smoke detector that you leave the building. Talking with Kevin Reardon, State Fire Marshal, what is the best way that people can be prepared if there's, you know, a, a, a stove fire? Well, one of, one of the biggest things is take, and some, some folks will take and have a small fire extinguisher, a properly rated fire extinguisher for use in the kitchen, mostly grease fires. That's the most common thing. Uh, there's that. Um, if, if there's a grease fire on your stove, the simple thing is suffocate it. Put a lid over the pan. Um, don't put water in it. Don't try to pick it up and dump it in your sink because that allows the grease to escape the pan and spread the fire. Uh, and one of the best things is remain calm. Uh, if you can bubble the flames, that'll take care of the majority of your problems from some of the kitchen fires. Uh, the other thing is gas stove safety. People have gas stoves to make sure that the sleeves that they have on their clothing don't get anywhere near the burner. If they're reaching over from a front burner to a back burner, there's a potential there. You should be very mindful and careful of your clothing anytime you're using a gas stove. You know, these days there's a lot of farmhouses that are way over 100 years old. A lot of two-story homes in, in cities are 100 years old. Even the old ranch houses now in the older neighborhoods of suburbs are 60 years old. It just seems like fires are going to become more common as time goes on because of old wiring or whatnot. Well, you're absolutely right because... Those older structures have older wiring in them. Um, some of it, you know, all, all of the older wiring we used to call mob and tube that was common around the turn of the century, it's the early 1900s. There are still older neighborhoods, older areas, where you will still find that uh, in a serviceable condition, and it's just not safe. Uh, the other thing with the older structures is the wood starts to dry out. Uh, so any time wood starts to dry out, it becomes very more prone to uh, spreading a fire much more quickly than in a newer structure. And one of the biggest things is the way older structures were built. Um, right now we have fire we have fire resistance construction devices in, in new homes. The methods have changed. Uh, in the older homes, the stud space uh, that you find behind your drywall or your plaster wall, that's open. Uh, it's called balloon construction, and, and that allows the fire to spread very quickly once it gets into that, that space behind the wall. And it, those are just a lot of the more common problems with older structures. Do you recommend that folks, you know, I don't know, look around and see wiring or or maybe have an inspection every 10 years or something or, you know, just to make sure everything's all right? Well, there's several things you can do. And, you know, we always encourage owners, if they have a doubt, get a professional in there to look at your wiring, for example. If you think you have an electrical problem, you're blowing circuits a lot. Uh, you, you smell an electrical smell that you can't pin down to a device. Call an electrician. Don't use that device until you get that outlet checked out or get your electric panel checked out. Contact a professional to do that. Uh, the other things we recommend for people in the winter is your furnace. You know, we have a lot of furnaces that quit in the winter, obviously. Um, do a fall check or an early winter check on your furnace. Have a professional come in, clean it, check it. Make sure that the flame adjustments are set properly on it so there's no carbon monoxide leaking, as well as make sure that it's functioning properly. So those are simple things property owners can do. And we see these tragic stories once in a while where, you know, if you're having trouble with your furnace or if you've just installed a new hot water heater, a gas heater, and you're feeling off, 
a few hours later. You need to really look at what's going on. Absolutely. If you've done something like that or something's taken place like that in your house and you begin to feel a little uh, you begin to feel dizzy, you begin to feel uh, a little sluggish, you just don't feel right, you need to leave the house immediately and call the fire department. Uh, your local fire department can come out and they can they can check the levels of carbon monoxide in your home, find if there's a leaking source, and at least identify it so that you can get it repaired uh, and shut off properly so that you're safe. What about the differences with homes, whether they be mobile homes, brick homes, two-story house, uh, wooden frame? Are there different characteristics of fires within those places? Well, there, there, there obviously is, and it, it all comes back to how the house has been constructed. Um, mobile homes really don't have a lot of inherent fire safety construction uh, practices within them. Uh, they're mobile. So they've, they've got to be built a little bit differently than a standalone residential structure is. Uh, the older mobile homes have a lot of problems because they are just uh, basic structures that have been built for people to live in. Um, and they're not the same as an occupied residential uh, house that's on a foundation that never moved. Uh, so those are some concerns. The space concerns in a mobile home are much different. You don't have a lot of time to escape a fire in a mobile home. You don't. Um, and you also need to identify two ways out of that mobile home because you just don't have a lot of alternatives if there's a fire near your primary exit door. So those are some things we ask people to think about if they, they live in a mobile home, even if they, they, they have one for recreation purposes. Those are just part of the preparation process in case something happens. We've been uh, pretty fortunate this year in terms of not having really bitterly cold temperatures at this point. But, you know, when when you see those firefighters out there in 10 below weather, you must just have unbelievable memories of that kind of stuff. Oh, you absolutely do. And and those memories are with you your whole lifetime. It's part of being in a profession. Uh, And that's why we do this. You know, Uh, being a firefighter, police officer, anybody in public safety, you're all in all the time. Um, you're never really shut down or turned off. You, you eat, drink, live, and sleep the profession of firefighting. Uh, and and that, that's 24-7, whether it's minus 10 or 110. It makes no difference. That's just the nature of being a firefighter. Uh, and it's tough. Uh, it's tough at both of those extremes. It's hard when it's cold and it's hard when it's hot. Uh, but we do our best to, to do what we can to take care of the situation and serve the public. Talking with Kevin Reardon, State Fire Marshal. Anything else you'd like to add? No, we appreciate your time, and we really do encourage Ohioans to to think about fire safety, especially this winter. Uh, We know that this is a time that we have a lot of fatalities, we have a lot of fires, and like I've said so many times, most of these fires are completely preventable, and uh, we just need Ohioans to think about that a little bit. And one other thing that, that Ohioans can do is if they have a question, Go to their local fire department. Meet with your local firefighters and ask them whatever your question is. They love to talk to the public. They love to serve the public. That's why we do what we do. So if anybody has questions about fire safety, contact your local fire department, and we have resources as well on our website. So um, I just encourage people to think about fire a little bit. Take some precautions to protect yourself. State Fire Marshal Kevin Reardon, thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dave. 
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Thursday of this week, just three days ago, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, provided an update on the coronavirus in Ohio. He also spoke with Dr. Daniel Bachman from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. We'll present comments from both of them. This runs just about nine minutes or so from Thursday's news conference. I'm Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the director of the Ohio Department of Health. The Omicron variant continues to sweep through Ohio, fueling what is nothing short of a tidal wave of COVID-19 cases, unlike anything we've seen over the past two years. Our daily COVID-19 case counts remain historically high, averaging well over 17,000 new cases every day. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's benchmark for community spread is the number of cases per 100,000 residents. This benchmark has proven to be helpful throughout the pandemic in assessing the extent to which the virus is impacting our communities. It's also useful in comparing COVID-19 spread in different communities of different sizes. Now, what's considered high community spread is 100 cases per 100,000 persons. And right now in Ohio, our statewide average is just shy of 2,000 cases per 100,000. 2,000. That's more than 20 times what is considered high. And for context, you might recall that just as recently as July, our figure was as low as 19 cases per 100,000. The numbers clearly demonstrate just how easily Omicron is spreading. This variant is extremely contagious, and cases are skyrocketing as a result. In this Omicron surge, we need to remember that no one is untouchable. Fortunately, for many, it's manifesting as a simple common cold. And this is especially true for those who get symptoms despite being vaccinated. But don't underestimate this variant. Hospitalizations across Ohio have shattered records this month. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, Ohio has surpassed 100,000 total coronavirus hospitalizations, and we passed that mark earlier this week. When it comes to hospitalizations, there is a widening gap between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. These more severe hospital cases are still mostly among the unvaccinated. And with roughly 30% of Ohioans still unvaccinated, This is a very serious concern. Our hospitals are swamped, and hospitals in all corners of the state 
have had to take extraordinary measures, including postponing elective surgeries and other medical procedures. The Cleveland Clinic will be receiving federal assistance from a team of 20 U.S. Air Force medical professionals. That team will include nurses, physicians, and respiratory therapists. The clinic asked us for this support as hospitalizations were peaking, and the Ohio Department of Health, in coordination with the Ohio Department of Public Safety and the Ohio Emergency Management Agency, worked with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, known as FEMA, to seek assistance. The team will begin working next week at the main campus. Past deployments like this have lasted about one or two months. The Cleveland Clinic shares that this support will help them open closed beds and be able to accept more transfers. We're joined by Dr. Daniel Bachman, who's an emergency physician and director of emergency preparedness at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And he's here today to uh, talk a little bit about Omicron's impact on our hospital emergency rooms. Dr. Bachman, tell us a little bit more about uh, life in your emergency room. Uh, what are some of the ways that you and your team are responding to cope with this rapid rise uh, in people seeking your, your medical care? Thanks for having me on, Dr. Dr. Vanderhoff. And um, I'd be happy to, to share our experience. So yeah, this rise in, in cases has meant an increase in our volume through the emergency department, as well as an increase in volume of patients that require hospitalization. Most of the patients who require hospitalization are the unvaccinated patients, um, but, uh, but that, that impact is really being felt um, by all patients um, because whether you're coming to the hospital with COVID um, or you're coming to the hospital with some other medical issue, um, the, the constraint on our capacity, um, the historic volumes that we're seeing is being felt by everyone right now. Um, and, you know, I can give you an example of that. Um, this morning in my county, um, we had over, well over 100 patients waiting to be hospitalized. And throughout all of the uh, uh, healthcare systems and hospitals in, in my county, we had less than 10 beds um, to fit those patients. Um, so it, it, creates, it creates a backlog. The National Guard um, has been useful um, in the hospital also, besides um, with the testing, um, and that has provided us some increased capacity uh, to, uh, to absorb some of this volume. Uh, we are also using our staff in um, creative ways um, to, uh, to provide, um, again, higher capacity, both in the emergency department and in the inpatient setting. Um, from a testing standpoint, uh, we're at a point that uh, patients won't necessarily be tested if they come to the emergency department and are low acuity, meaning you know, they, they otherwise are, are pretty well appearing and don't have other illnesses that would place them at high risk for complications from COVID. Um, in those situations, um, patients may not uh, receive a test, even if they come to the emergency department. Um, they'll still be evaluated, but, um, but that, that 
testing, um, you know, creates uh, adds to some of the inefficiency. And so, um, so that's, that's a step that, that uh, many healthcare systems have taken um, in response to the high volumes that we're seeing. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bachman. Uh, just one final uh, question, and that is, uh, what would you, in light of all this, ask uh, members of the community to do to help hospitals cope uh, with the volume that you're seeing? Well, I think there's two things uh, from that standpoint. Um, the first one is vaccination. It is, it is not too late to be vaccinated, and the impact of, of being vaccinated is real. It, it doesn't mean that you won't necessarily get infected with, uh, with COVID at some point, but what it does mean is that your chance of needing to be hospitalized and your chance of having serious effects from a COVID infection are much, much, much lower if you're vaccinated. Um, so, so, again, you know, I can't stress the, the importance of vaccination enough. Um, I think the other thing that we're seeing, especially right now, um, is, is, is the high volume and um, the decision to uh, seek uh, care and or testing um, at all. Um, if you have COVID symptoms, but you otherwise feel well, you may not need to be evaluated um, in a healthcare setting. Um, you can start with simple measures such as doing a test at home if you have a home uh, test available, um, going to a testing site. Um, again, there are testing sites that are uh, sponsored by public health departments, by healthcare systems. Um, there are commercial um, uh, testing sites at drugstores, um, and you can get a test and answer the question, uh, you know, do you have COVID in that, in that manner? And if you determine that you, you have need for, for emergent care uh, over and above your, your question of, do I have COVID, then it's still appropriate to come to the emergency department. Um, but that's not necessarily something that um, most or all of uh, patients who have COVID symptoms really need to do. Uh, the last thing that I would mention is um, call your primary care physician. You know, that phone call um, to, to answer a few questions um, if you're not sure which of those routes um, that you should go um, can be a helpful thing. That's again the state health director, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, along with Dr. Daniel Bachman from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, speaking on Thursday of this week. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. The nation paused to remember the attack on the U.S. Capitol one year ago. Hear from Ohio lawmakers who had to run and hide for safety on that day. Plus, the two Democratic candidates for Ohio governor introduced their picks for running mates. And more soldiers are ready to be deployed to a hospital that may be near you. But what is the status of the vaccination rate in the Ohio National Guard? Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. One year since a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. It was in an attempt to prevent the certification of the 2020 presidential election results. President Biden called out his predecessor, saying the nation is at a turning point. 
Congresswoman Joyce Beatty says she remembers what it was like on that day. I was there. I know what it's like to have young staffers huddled on the floor, calling their parents saying, I think I could die. I mean, just think about the responsibility on us and to even think that the president of the United States pushed and forged those individuals to do that, to take over the Capitol no matter what. Think about a president's son saying, you've gone too far. Stop this. Think about some of the most Republicans of Republicans asking the president to stop this. Now, that does give me some hope that we know all of the elected officials on the other side of the aisle, some of them were there scared and devastated. They may not say it now, but play the videos back and you will see Democrats and Republicans fearing for their life. And just to think that some of that was caused because of the president then of the United States and members in leadership and members of Congress so I would say to the leadership on the other side of the aisle with me, stand up for justice. I would say to the leadership over there, stand up and make this right for the country and for our democracy. Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown also shared his thoughts on January 6th. I don't think anybody could have predicted what happened. Um, but I think that the, the leadership at the Capitol Police was found wanting. I think the leadership's improved. Uh, I, I know that officers are dedicated. I've talked to a lot of officers since then. I've talked to custodians and, and other workers at the Capitol um, that they, they don't want to live through anything like that again. Last summer, Senator Brown shared these photos the morning after the insurrection showing the damage that was done inside the building. Congressman Jim Jordan spoke with Fox News before the anniversary. He disagrees about who's to blame for the attack. Democrats spied on President Trump's campaign and they did an impeachment proceeding in secret based on a so-called whistleblower whose identity only Adam Schiff got to know. But somehow Donald Trump is the threat to democracy. So we have to, to, to make sure we get the truth out, as Jim Banks said, about what really happened, what should have been in place that day to protect the Capitol. Governor Mike DeWine weighed in on the divide between the parties. We have a great, great future, uh, and it's important for us on basic core principles to remind ourselves we all agree on these basic core principles, and we need to move, move the state forward. We need to move the country forward. It began with a false claim repeated by President Trump and his supporters that the election was somehow stolen. In the year that has followed that violent day, more than 700 people have been charged, including 36 Ohioans, some of whom are still waiting for their day in court. Here's Chief Investigative Reporter Bennett Haberly. We stormed the Capitol. These videos were recorded by those who were there. Posted to social media sites like Parler and have since been archived online by ProPublica, showing Trump supporters, militia members, and others descending on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, breaching its doors, and engaging in violent clashes with Capitol Police. This storm was fueled in part by misinformation about a stolen election. 
lawmakers were forced to evacuate, temporarily delaying Congress from certifying the 2020 election. Videos like these are now key pieces of potential evidence for federal prosecutors who've charged 725 people with crimes related to the insurrection. Among them, at least three dozen Ohioans. The FBI used these videos and GPS cell phone signals to help identify who was there. Took over the Capitol, overran the Capitol. Ohio State Militia members Donovan Crowell and Jessica Watkins recorded themselves inside the rotunda. Crowell and Watkins were identified as members of the Oath Keepers, which defines itself as a nonpartisan group of current and former military and law enforcement members who defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Anti-Defamation League has called the Oath Keepers an extremist group. Prosecutors allege Crowell and Watkins were involved in a violent mob to breach a back door of the Capitol in order to impede or stop the election from being certified. Crowell has since been released. We were unable to reach him. Watkins was placed in federal custody, which her attorney argued against. This week, we traveled to their town of Woodstock, Ohio, in Champaign County, to learn more. Residents we spoke to off camera recalled the raid on this building and the upstairs apartment where Watkins used to live, where court records allege the FBI found paperwork regarding explosives. Jessica Watkins used to work at this bar here in Woodstock. The FBI alleges in court documents that she took part in actively recruiting people to join her militia. Her attorney declined to comment to 10 investigates, but in court records argued the prosecutor's case is not nearly as strong as it is claimed adding that her client was going to D.C. to provide security. She also noted there's no evidence Watkins planned an attack and that she has since disbanded her militia and declared she is sickened by what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. But we found there are still differing opinions about what really transpired that day. Well, I like it. I think it's real pretty. I think there should be 100 million of them out, just like that. Carl Pullins is referring to his flag. He is one voice, but his opposition to President Biden is likely shared here in Champaign County, where three out of every four votes cast in the 2020 election went to Donald Trump. What, what do you make of the, the people like who live in your hometown who stormed the Capitol, who took part in the insurrection, who federal officials say tried to disrupt our electoral process? Well, them and a lot of other people, and I think the government was all involved in that, too. You know, so that's my opinion. That belief that the government was involved in the events of January 6th has been parroted by others, including Ohioans charged. Really, in any any FBI case, I know the ones that I worked, um, you know, our goal is always to hold people accountable for the bad things that they do. Harry Trombitis is a retired FBI agent. He says the fact that over 700 people have been charged should be a signal of what is and isn't going to be tolerated. A handful of more than the 30 Ohioans charged have entered plea agreements. You know, it was um, a, a very bad situation. And I think the message is that um, as long as you're peaceful and you get your message across peacefully, you're welcome to do so. But as soon as you cross that line and you know start destroying property, um, hurting people, uh, then you're going to be held accountable. Bennett Haberly, 10 Investigates. 
President Trump issued a statement on the anniversary criticizing President Biden, and he repeated a false statement questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 election, calling it rigged. He also said this, they got away with something and it is leading to our country's destruction. In the Ohio governor's race, two Democratic candidates announced their running mates. Former Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley picked Senator Teresa Fetter of Toledo. Cranley called Senator Fetter the perfect choice. Teresa Fetter is my partner, and together we will put this Ohio comeback in place. Teresa Fetter is a woman who's committed her life to public service. She served our country in the military. She was a public school educator, and she has been one of, if not the longest, Democratic women to ever serve in the General Assembly in making results, even in hostile supermajority Republican legislatures on human trafficking, on addiction services, on unemployment. She has fought and fought and fought. This is going to be a ticket that turns around Ohio like none other not with safe platitudes, but with big, bold ideas, smart, strategic, well-thought-out plans, and plans that everyone can get involved with, because we're going to go all over the state of Ohio and listen. And we're not only going to listen, we're going to inspire people to think that they can be part of this team and be part of the change and make it all happen. Now, I know John can do it because he's led this comeback. All people in Ohio need to know he's already done it. I stand with John because I believe in him. I've spent my whole political career in the legislature. I've also been an educator for almost 18 years. I left that classroom because I knew that those nine-year-olds that I taught and saw every day needed more opportunity than I had. And guess what? They weren't getting it. I had more opportunity than they have. Author and women's rights advocate Gloria Steinem endorsed the Cranley Fetter ticket. Former Dayton mayor Nan Whaley named Cheryl Stevens to run as her lieutenant governor. Stevens is a Cuyahoga County Council member and the former mayor of Cleveland Heights. Cheryl is one of the smartest and hardest working people I know in Ohio politics. She's exactly the type of leader we don't have enough of in this state. She's a workhorse, not a show horse. She's focused on getting things done for her community and not claiming the credit. Cheryl and I come from different communities in different parts of the state, but we both know this. Ohio deserves better. We deserve a state that works for us, and the only way we'll get there is with a total overhaul. And as your next governor and lieutenant governor, that's our promise. I thoroughly believe that whether you live in Cleveland Heights with me or you live in Zanesville at the other end of the alphabet, the other end of the state, you believe in the American dream, too. That dream, for those of you who weren't born in this country, is three-legged tripod, three principles to what we all expect out of America. Number one, we can all agree that every child should have access to a decent public education. That if you're willing to work hard, number two, you should be able to find a job that pays you a fair wage. And number three, that if you are willing to save your pennies, turn them into dollars, and not spend them all, you should be able to buy a home for your family and leave your kids a little bit better off than you were. 
On the Republican side, Governor DeWine is running for re-election as well. Joe Blystone, who's a farmer from East Liverpool, is running, and so is former U.S. Representative Jim Renacci. More Ohio soldiers are deploying to hospitals across our state to help with that COVID surge we've been reporting on. The rollout, though, has required strategy because roughly half the members are not vaccinated. To be exact, only 56 percent of Ohio's Army National Guard members have been vaccinated. Eleven percent more have gotten their first shot. Only those vaccinated will interact with patients. But our state's top leaders are still sending the message that they want more Guard members to be protected. The reality is the vaccine is a part of medical readiness. We consider it an aspect of medical readiness. I would never put a soldier or airman in harm's way without the best protection we could put on them. Body armor, helmets, I would never put them in harm's way. I'd be an irresponsible leader if I did that. And this medical readiness is the exact same thing. The federal deadline for National Guard members to get the COVID vaccine is June 30th, but Major General Harris has moved up the deadline for Ohio Guard members to March 31st. A new year means a new minimum wage for Ohio. It's, it's great. It'll help. It's going to be a little bit of relief for a lot of people, but it's not really going to help enough Ohioans really get ahead. We look at the debate that increase is sparking over the push to make $15 an hour the minimum wage. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Some Ohio workers are noticing a bump in their paycheck. The state's minimum wage increased 7% on January 1st from $8.80 to $9.30 an hour. Tipped workers saw a 25-cent increase. This bump in pay is based on inflation. We talk with the president of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, Steve Stivers, and Hannah Halbert from Policy Matters Ohio about the change. Both agreed that it's good news for Ohio, but, well, they disagree on if the change goes far enough. In 2006, Ohio voters went to the ballot and said, you know, we really have to do more for working people in the state. And uh, they voted to increase the minimum wage at that time and link it to inflation. And so what we're seeing this year, it's great. It means that people that are earning the minimum wage or are near the minimum wage are able to kind of keep pace with rising prices. But we never really filled the gap. By the time we made that decision as, as voters in Ohio, the gap between what the peak of minimum wage was back in 1968 and what we really needed as you know folks to get by had grown significantly. We haven't had a problem with inflation in the last 15 years, inflation for, well, maybe 20 years has been, you know, about one to 2%. Uh, so this is the first time we've really seen, I wouldn't call 7% hyperinflation, but meaningful inflation for, you know, a big chunk of a year um, in at least a generation. So this is a big increase. So I don't expect it to disrupt many of the labor markets in Ohio or cause any problems. Because as I said, you know, you can drive by a McDonald's and see help wanted for $15, $17, $20 an hour uh, there. And a lot of the average wage in Ohio 
um, is significantly higher than the minimum wage. Some employers have made that increase. Uh, certainly some employers are trying to uh, do the right thing by their workforce. But, you know, a lot of those gains can be temporary. And we saw that with the uh, corporations like the Dollar Tree that increased wages, gave a premium pay of about two bucks an hour for a few months and then snatch that back. And so this is the way that we change the policy. We set the ground floor and say, you know what? If people are working, they should be able to afford a basic uh, standard of living. Nowhere in the state will this minimum wage get someone to what uh, is known as an housing wage. So a wage that would make a two bedroom apartment pretty basic, affordable. To get that, we would need more than $16 an hour in the state. If Ohio raised our wage to $15 an hour by 2026, which is something, you know, states like Florida are, are on their way to doing this. This is this is the Florida plan. Uh, that would help 1.6 million Ohio workers. It would also help alleviate or, or really close some of the inequality gaps that are happening in our labor force, where uh, women you know, occupations where there's a lot of women present, where there's a lot of black workers present are historically undervalued. So by raising that wage, it actually drives more uh, money to working women, more money to working black Ohioans. I think $15 an hour is a giant jump for um, folks that are paying minimum wage. And as I said, it's not very many people, but it will result in um if there were a, an immediate jump that was quick, as opposed to over time, which is what we're doing in Ohio as we're raising it based on inflation over time. Uh, if there was an immediate jump to $15 an hour, that could cause some issues for some lower skilled jobs. And I think it could result in some job shortages. So uh, for people that are looking, uh, if you were to jump it too fast, too quick, but I don't think you'll see anybody complain about this 7% jump up to $9 and 30 cents an hour, because as I said, uh, you know, most people are paying $15 an hour, but not everybody can afford that. And not every job is worth $15 an hour. There are some starting jobs that are, or jobs for minors that are, you know, worth more close to minimum wage. A worker that gets that uh, $9 and 30 cents an hour, if they're lucky enough to secure a full-time schedule year-round, they're still going to be making a little over $2,000 below the federal poverty line for a family of three. It's great. It'll help. It's going to be a little bit of relief for a lot of people, but it's not really going to help enough Ohioans really get ahead. To do that, we need to go back to the ballot. We need a legislature that'll really look at raising that minimum wage to a living wage. I think we need to keep the pressure on to increase it. And those jobs are seeing an increase in um, in their salary this year, obviously, as a result of the index that we have. But I think moving to $15 would be a giant jump and could cause some problems. About. It's more than just numbers. Uh, these are our children. These are our families. These are our seniors. These are our workers that work every day. 
That's Senator Herschel Craig. He is one of two senators sponsoring Senate Bill 51. That bill will raise the minimum wage to $12 and gradually increases it to $15 an hour by 2025. State Senator Craig says the bill will help Ohioans build better lives. This clearly uh, reduces poverty. That 1.5 million, that's a large number. That's not just urban, that's rural. That, that even suburban, all of our families, wherever they are, and it, and uh, this uh, issue around income inequality, at the same time, that families have more income. Um, uh, we know that uh, based upon um, uh, the economics is that they're, they, they're spending more, they're putting more back into the, the economy. They're, they're able to buy more clothing for their children and assist more with families. But it, all, all down the line, uh, I think it has, has impact. So I would just simply suggest uh, that uh, this is an opportunity uh, to help all Ohioans uh, have the opportunity for growth and real ladders of opportunity. It's important for parents to know what their kids are learning in school. A new bill introduced this week at the Ohio State House would make it easier to do just that. We'll explain how. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. There is a push to make it easier to find out what your child is being taught in school. The Education Transparency Act was introduced in Ohio. State Representative Brett Hillier says it will make sure schools post all curricula and syllaba online. He says it's so parents can be more engaged in their child's education. I think ultimately it's just uh, a tool that parents can use when making a choice for what that course will look like, right? And I think, you know, one of the examples that... uh, you know, real life examples here in Ohio, one of my joint sponsors, Bill Romer, in his neck of the woods, Hudson, Ohio, they've had these outbursts. And I think you followed those. And, and um, I think some of these concerns about curriculum and education could have been addressed if, if they were you know, provided in the beginning, right? It would, it would disarm some of the arguments about <clears throat> any kind of uh, nefarious purpose because the teacher or the administrator would simply say, parent, the, the information is online. What, what did you not expect? We will be sure to keep you posted on the status of that bill. 
And in the meantime, we certainly thank you for joining us here today on Face the State. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. I learned patience from my adoptive dad. (sighs) All he had to say was, Hey, you got this. Just breathe. Hey, <laughs> we're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Might have to start a band. <laughs> I got it. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. <laughs> Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Sapna Thomas, a gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about colorectal cancer and also the trend of younger women uh, being diagnosed with colon cancer. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, a recent study came out uh, looking at women, especially under the age of 50, diagnosed with colorectal cancer across the country. And what they found is that women in certain zip codes in in counties were dying at a higher rate than other women. And so they found some interesting facts that sometimes physical inactivity or lower fertility, as well as race and ethnicity, may play a role in that. So that is definitely concerning that we need to do better as far as screening not only uh, women, but men and maybe at younger ages. And some of those areas are in Ohio, right? That is correct. Uh, Hamilton County, uh, which includes Cincinnati, as well as uh, multiple northeastern Ohio counties are included in those hotspots. What is perhaps the biggest risk factor that might be uh, part of this? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into the risk of colon cancer. Sometimes family history um, and genetics play a role. Um, However, you know, diet may play some role in colorectal cancer, although those are not clearly defined. But as we see our Western diet change, as we see increasing rates of obesity, um, even smoking can um, all play a role in the risk of, of having colon cancer. I knew a woman who unfortunately passed away from colorectal cancer who was in her late 30s. And I remember reading that that this sort of thing is becoming more common. It was almost unheard of decades ago. That is correct. We are seeing uh, recent studies uh, have noted an increasing incident in colon cancer in younger adults, and that's why current recommendations are uh, recommending to decrease the age of initial screening to 45. Um, We do see that younger patients diagnosed with colon cancer tend to have more aggressive disease than those that are diagnosed at older ages. But um, ideally, you know, the earlier we can screen and screen the larger population of people, then the sooner we can find the precancerous polyps, remove them, and hopefully even prevent colon cancer in those patients. And you're concerned also because of the coronavirus that most people have for the last year uh, not been getting those kind of checkups. That is correct. I mean, with coronavirus and a lot of things being shut down, um, people not being at work, and also the fear of coming into a center to that they might um, get the virus, um, it's important to remember that, you know, screening and healthcare, it's still important to maintain those screening tests, and um, colon cancer should not be put to the back burner because everybody needs to be screened. Talking with Dr. Sapna Thomas, gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. What is the biggest 
symptom, even if it's subtle? What is it that people are, are not paying attention to? I think the most common symptom that people tend to ignore is probably blood in the stool, which a common cause of that is hemorrhoids. However, um, without knowing for sure, it's important to um, talk to your provider and potentially get um, a colonoscopy to evaluate that bleeding to make sure that it isn't a polyp or a tumor that might be bleeding. Patients can also have um, change in bowel habits, abdominal pain or rectal pain that's new um, or unexpected weight loss. And, you know, even those symptoms should all be uh, discussed with their provider and considered having a colonoscopy, but even people who don't have any symptoms can still have a large polyp or a tumor um, that um, could be could become worrisome. I know that the, the individual case will vary, but what is more alarming, uh, fresh, bright red blood in the stools or black tarry stools? Well, um, fresh, bright red blood is considered um, coming from lower in the GI tract, and so hemorrhoids or even tumors that might be lower in the rectum or distal um, part of the colon uh, can have more brighter blood. However, blood that might be darker or might not even be visible may be coming from up higher in the colon on the right side of the colon. Okay, and, and what about testing? Has less invasive testing made inroads of, in recent years? There are some available um, less invasive testings. Um, however, you know, the recent recommendations from the American College of Gastroenterology just it talks about uh, first one-step testing, which would be the colonoscopy, because we can also find polyps, remove them, and prevent colon cancer versus the two-step, which does have some initial testing that might be less invasive, such as stool-based tests or um, CT colonography, which is a CAT scan type of test, a colon capsule, um, or even just a flexible sigmoidoscopy. But the issue with those tests is that if they're positive, you still need a colonoscopy. And patients should check with their insurance company about the potential cost of this two-step program. Okay, and I did want to ask you one other thing about symptoms. Is pain generally a, a, a symptom of this? And, and if so, is it does that happen early enough to, to catch it in time? Well, symptoms of colon cancer generally start to arise as the tumor grows or either causes an obstruction or um, invades the wall of the colon. So the earlier uh, that we can find it when it's still a polyp, which generally has no symptoms, is important to, to consider. Abdominal pain can be from a lot of different causes. Um, obviously, colon cancer is one of the more um, concerning reasons, and so talking to your provider as far as your symptoms and how new they are will help um, guide uh, further evaluation. And what about treatment and prognosis? So we are seeing uh, mortality rates decreasing the colon cancer, and part of that is related to early detection, um, better screening, um, as well as better surgical and treatment options for colon cancer. So the mortality rate is definitely decreasing since the 1980s, um, but the issue, as we discussed earlier, is, is finding younger people with more advanced cancers um, earlier that we need to uh, try to address better. Talking with Dr. Sapna Thomas, gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. So what would be the biggest advice you could give to, to women or anybody who may be at risk? Well, we do feel the best screening is the one that gets completed. So despite us only screening about 60% of adults across the country, I would my best advice is to talk to your provider, get screened um, any which way you're willing to. Obviously, we believe in colonoscopy for both prevention and screening, um, but any symptoms or even no symptoms, if you're over the age of 45, um, consider getting screened. And uh, is there a website you're uh, advising folks to check out? Yes, I would definitely recommend going to gi.org slash colon cancer for more information from the American College of Gastroenterology. Okay, Dr. Thomas in Cleveland, thanks so much for the information. Thank you for your time.
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.